This episode of the Urnet Podcast is dedicated to all the American Special Forces soldiers killed in Somalia in 1993. They are Master Sergeant Gary Gordon, Sergeant First Class Randy Shugart, Sergeant Daniel Bush, Sergeant First Class Earl Robert Fillmore, Master Sergeant Timothy Lynn Martin, Sergeant First Class Matthew Lauren Rearson, Corporal James Smith, Specialist James N. Cavico, Sergeant James Casey Joyce, Corporal Richard Kolowski, Sergeant Dominic Pilla, Sergeant Lorenzo Ruiz, Sergeant William Cleveland, Sergeant Thomas J. Field, CW4 Raymond Alex Frank, CW3 Clifton P. Wolcott, CW3 Donovan Lee Briley, Sergeant Cornell Lamont Houston, Private First Class James Henry Martin. Welcome back to the Urnet Podcast. Today, we're talking United States Air Force Special Operations with Dan Schilling. Hit it! Yes, tonight we have um, Dan Schilling, who is a former Air Force combat controller. Um, Dan, thank you for being here tonight. Austin, it's my pleasure. I think it's a great show you've started, and I'm happy to be here. Great. So why don't you give me sort of a 30-second overview of who Dan Schilling is, where where you grew up, um, how you entered the military, and what you're doing now. Well, I, I, uh, I grew up in mostly in Utah. Um, I went to high school here, and, uh, but I was born uh, and early raised down in Newport Beach, California, but Utah is really home. And I got into the military because the girl I was dating at the time reached into my chest, grabbed my heart and ripped it out. And that seemed <laughs> like, uh, it seemed like <clears throat> I had met a recruiter who said to me, we'll pay you to jump out of airplanes. And it had never occurred to me in my life to jump out of an airplane. And I was yeah. looking for something new. And I just jumped at it, if I could use that word, and uh, started off as an army paratrooper grunt. I was an infantryman and uh, I enjoyed that, but I found my way into combat control and that's where I spent most of my career as an Air Force Special Op. Yeah, so how did you, I'm interested in to know, how did you transfer from the Army over to the Air Force? Well, you wouldn't be able to do it now. This is the 80s. And uh, what happened is I went on, I met some combat controllers and realized that's where I wanted. And mm-hmm. when I, so I went and found an Air Force recruiter. This is 1987. And I said, hey, this is what I'm looking to do. And he said, here's the paperwork. If you can get released by the Army, we can do an inter-service transfer, and before your enlistment is up, you can move to the Air Force. The key is your commander has to sign it. So I did all the paperwork in secret with my new best buddy in the Air Force recruiting office, and then I went back to my company commander and said, hey, sir, you know, I think I'm really destined to do this and blah, 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 and he said, I'll tell you what, not realizing I had done all this back alley drug dealing, said, yep. if you can get the Air Force to take you, I'll... I'll let you go. And I mm-hmm. pulled out my package, slid it across the desk and went, there you go, sir. And he was boxed in. To his yep. credit, he signed the paperwork and uh, I went into combat control. Cool. So maybe for the average Joe who's out there, they might be going, what the heck is combat control? Because when they think of Air Force, right, you typically think of a pilot. So can you sort of explain 
um, what combat control is, what your mission was. I'm happy to. And it's it's the purpose of the book I wrote, um, my not my most recent book, but the book before that called Alone at Dawn. It's about two things. It's about the Air Force's first Medal of Honor in half a century, which was um, awarded to a combat controller. And it's about combat control because, as you pointed out, nobody knows what combat control is. It's the most it's the least known special operations force in the world, which is ironic because what they are is the world's deadliest individuals to ever walk a battlefield in the history of human warfare. And the reason that's so is these guys do everything that a SEAL or a Green Beret can do when it comes to tactics, jump, dive, blow stuff up, shoot a gun, patrol, all those things. But they yep. have on top of that, and they really specialize in the application of air power as a fire support capability. They can put a bomb on a spot on earth or on a human better than anybody else ever. Other people can call airstrikes, but nobody in the world, and this is universally recognized, can, mm -hmm. can choreograph that four-dimensional space into death on a point like a combat controller. And so they're the Air Force's version of a special ops ground guy. Yeah. Well, it was interesting. I actually stumbled across your book like three years ago and I saw Medal of Honor Afghanistan. And then I saw Air Force Combat Control. I was like, oh, I never heard that before. So then I read it and I was like, huh, I never knew. So and that's, you know, I'll say Austin, that's a common reaction. People, the first reaction is they do what in the Air Force? And then mm -hmm. on, that's followed up shortly thereafter with, I had no idea. And that is the purpose of my book. My book's intent is to help the change the typical American citizen's view of the entire Air Force to say, man, the deadliest guys ever are not Navy SEALs. You know, because most people think about ships yep. or SEALs in the Navy. When you say yep. Navy, that's what people think. And in the Air Force, I want people to think combat controller and pilot, both of mm -hmm. those things. And so that's my mission. Yeah. So how did you go from being, you tell me sort of like what the training process was going from an army paratrooper um, to being, you know, like you said, the deadliest man on the battlefield. Um, what's the training evolution like for that? Yeah, so it's changed a lot because the evolution of that has evolved over time, and especially in the last 20 years with the war that ended yesterday. But the training pipeline is really, it's its similar to a lot of special operations training. Uh, you know, the SEALs do buds. You go there and you get punished and we weed out who doesn't really want to be here or doesn't have the capability. And the training pipeline for us was the same way. You show up at a place called INDOC, which was our version of, of buds. And you basically do the same things. You're doing underwater stuff. You get oxygen debt things. You're, you're, you're doing a lot of running, a lot of calisthenics. And my class started with 150 some odd guys, more than that, actually. Yeah. Um, and of all the guys that graduated from my in-doc class, there were only six of us at the end, which is a 4% wow. success rate. Right. So it was, yeah. now we've improved since then, but there's still really, it's about an 85% attrition. And then from there, you go on to jump school and you go to dive school. And then you, you for us, we go to air traffic control school and survival school and water survival school and a list of schools. Mm -hmm until you come out at the end of this thing, two years later, a brand new guy who still really isn't qualified to be calling airstrikes the way we do. You spend another year, two, to try and get the expertise that we have. And it's built on the foundation of 
were all rated Air Force air traffic controllers. In fact, my unit sent me off for six months to a civilian airport and I didn't do anything but work as an air traffic controller and skydive every day off I had um, for six months so I could be certified. And that type of expertise on a battlefield is just unprecedented because if you think about what air power brings, it's got so much, there's so much more power slung under the the wings of a fighter or a B-52 bomber in in its bomb bay than there is in any gun you can carry on a battlefield. Yeah. So was was it harder? Would you say was it easier having already gone through um, Army basic training and become a paratrooper with any of those qualifications? Well, I mean, I'd already been to jump school, but for us, jump school is three weeks of vacation because it's just you jump out of a plane five times and you have to suck it up with yeah. the Army. Um, so, you know, there's a, a couple of things, but I think mostly was a mindset. I had been in the military a couple of years. I was a corporal. And I understood the process of military indoctrination, how things were structured, what people could expect from you by way of meritocracy. If you worked harder than the other guys, then you would probably be the better guy. And it's all about what you can throw into it. So when I got to INDOC at the Air Force, man, I was ready. I thought. And at the end of the day, you still go through a crucible, you know, when they... When people take your sleep and your food away from you, that's one thing. When they steal your oxygen, you have a very limited time to figure out if yeah. you really want to be here. And, you know, it's hard to overcome that drive to swim underwater until you pass out. And that doesn't happen to everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, I browned out a couple of times where, you you know, your vision goes first and when you're at oxygen yep. deprivation. Yep. And I actually bumped into the wall and realized, oh, I'm at the other side because I couldn't see. And that's... Mm-hmm. That's what we're looking for is the ability to stress people. And no matter what you do to them, short of shooting them, they won't give up and they'll keep their composure and they can perform under that kind of pressure. And, you know, even that is not the same as combat. When you get to combat, you realize this is this is different than the stuff we've gone through, but you're better prepared. Uh, that's kind of mm-hmm. a long answer, but uh, that yeah. was my journey anyway. Yeah. So how did you go from, um, you went, I don't really know what the timeline was like, but when did you get your, um, like when were you fully qualified, I guess, for combat? And then can you kind of tell me like what happened from then leading up to the events in Mogadishu? Well, I, so it took me about another year to get fully certified where I was what we would consider fully combat deployable because there's so many things you have to do. I mean, we have to do everything that a steel or a green beret does at their level, because that's who you get integrated with, but you're only there as an individual. So the burden of your expertise falls on your shoulders alone in a gunfight. We can support each other, me with a seal platoon or a special forces ODA. But when it comes to the air power, it's you. And so, you know, I, I spent my time doing that and, uh, Two years to the week, almost, after I had been qualified, I tried out for what is the 24th Special Tactics Squad. And that's really the the varsity level, uh, if you will, unit for combat control. It's similar. I could be a Green Beret, but if I want to go to Delta Force, Delta Force is a unit. And you have to try out and go there. And then you've ascended to what would be the pinnacle of counterterrorism in the U.S. Army. For us, it was the same thing. So I, I did that two years in, and I went to the first Gulf War with uh, the 
with that unit. And then uh, two years later, I guess, 93, Somalia came along. I was attached to Delta Force at the time. And when we were planning the mission, I was one of the planners. And then I ended up deploying with uh, with uh, the C Squadron from Delta Force for what everybody knows is Black Hawk Down. And yeah. that was a that was a very big deployment for most people that were there. It was, um, you know, it was very that one gunfight you've seen in the movie was a very serious gunfight. Right. So what was it like going? Um, what was it like going to the Gulf War for the first time and seeing? Do you see combat there? Well, or what we were doing was hunting scuds. Um, you know, and some of that's come out in the public realm. Some of it hasn't because there are still some sensitive aspects to that. So it wasn't really combat. Some guys we had that were out doing long range patrols, hunting scuds with Delta Force, got in gunfights. Um, mm-hmm. Most did not because um, by definition, we were out there sneaking around. Um, so yeah. for me, that was it was a good deployment, um, but I, I didn't really see combat there. My, my first combat was in Somalia and, uh, and I got into a handful of gunfights there. You know, and then life goes on, the war breaks out and everybody's off doing a lot of fighting. So uh, for me, that was the first Gulf War was not my first real combat. It was a lot. You know, I'd been in Central America. Um, I'd worked in Southeast Asia. But this was, you know, really my first big campaign, uh, the mm-hmm. first Gulf War. But you know, the war didn't last that long. So not a lot of people got a lot of action, even in special ops. Yep. So you mind talking a little bit about the events of that day and sort of what um, where you were at, what you were doing, what happened? Well, I was a combat controller. And at this point, uh, from when I first was planning the missions, which was in spring of 93, to when we deployed, which wasn't until summer, there's a rotation pattern. And the Delta Squadron had rotated out. And so I rotated out. And a new combat controller was in. But what happened is we, we incorporated Rangers into the mission, which wasn't something we had mm-hmm. done before in our planning. But in the event... We had a company of rangers that went with us to provide perimeter security when we were taking down targets, which was a pretty good right. integrated plan. Had some shortcomings in the event, but uh, it was a great idea. And uh, I ended up being attached to the ranger commander and in that vehicle. So we had a helicopter assault that would go in and secure the initial target buildings or individuals we were targeting to to capture on those days they were all capture missions they weren't kill missions and then the vehicles would roll in and provide a cordon to keep more bad guys from coming in to prevent them from coming in and keep other bad guys inside our perimeter from escaping so i ended up being part of that force but you know both forces would converge on one point in the city of mogadishu so my job was to be the combat controller i provided a lot of communication between the air and the ground i didn't really call a lot of airstrikes that day because my position had more heavy weapons. Uh, we had 50 cals and Mark 19s, mm-hmm. which were 40 millimeter grenade launchers and right. other places in the battle where I knew other combat controllers were, didn't have crew served or heavy weapons. And mm-hmm. it was apparent that that's where the air power needed to go. So, which is also part of your job when you, you have to be aware enough of the entire plan to make decisions. This is as a combat controller that you're not trying to take away something that you think should be 
better used somewhere else. But you can't make those decisions, at least a sound decision, unless you really know what's going on. And it's one of the burdens uh, and one of the great things about being a combat controller is you really have to be dialed into what that plan is and how things are unfolding on the battlefield. You can't just think mm -hmm. about, hey, this is my surroundings and my immediate team. You have to think about the entire mission. And that's different than a shooter, like the Delta Force guys that were to my right and left or the Rangers that were providing you know, security. They're just shooting guns at people in front of them. What's happening with the bigger gunfight is not part of their op obligation or responsibility. So it's a lot of responsibility. And that, and that was how it went for me that day. And I ended up being in the very last vehicle, uh, in the very back of the very last vehicle to leave the, the final objective 18 hours later. It was a very long gunfight. Yeah. So what was that like um, seeing combat for the first time? Well, I'd been out. I'd been in some other gunfights before that day. Um, mm -hmm. Combat for the first time. It's a little bit like driving a car. When you before you have your driver's license, you know, driving is this thing that you think about because you want that car. Car equals freedom. In our case, man, going to combat is gives you the validation of all this training you've been in. So a lot of guys really want to get into operations and do things. They don't necessarily want to be in a bad gunfight, but you know, this is part of what you're why you came in. But when you get your driver's license and you first get behind the wheel, it's different than you think. And then it becomes even more different when you've been driving for years and you don't even think about driving anymore because you, it's yeah. second nature. And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to diminish the, the gravity of combat, but what I'm saying is as soon as you get into it, some, some things become readily apparent about how things function. Gunfights have uh, a natural life cycle to them. They have peaks and lulls. So things are going, you know, more high order, lots of fire, then the fire dies down. And depending on what you're after for your objective, if you're trying to assault something, it takes on a different life. And if you're attacking vehicles, that's a different thing. If you're defending a position, that's even a third type of a gunfight and you're thinking differently. And so you rapidly earn, learn a lot of things. And then from there, you build on this knowledge base that allows you to orient more quickly and become even more effective. And it's one of the things that makes American special operations, which was already the deadliest in the world, on the heels of this longest running war, nobody wants to get in a gunfight with American special ops because we'll crush them. And it's the same with combat controllers. Nobody's gonna wanna get into a fight with our guys because of our ability to bring in more power. No other nation has that because we've had so much experience across so many fronts in 20 years. Yeah, so what was it like, obviously, after a lot of people call it Black Hawk Down, I don't really think it should be called that, um, honestly. What but, do you think So after this, like, Battle of Mogadish, because mm -hmm. a lot of people, I think, a lot of people dwell on, oh, we lost two helicopters, but, you know, we also went and seized a whole bunch of, you know, high-level bad guys. But, I was going to say, I think you made a really good observation there because the press always lock, lock on to the tragedy. 18 Americans yeah. died and actually four helicopters crashed. Only two of them made it back to the airport. They actually crashed in the right. airport and two crashed in the city. And we lost some vehicles and we killed 1,000, 1,500 people. Nobody knows. But they always lock on to that. And the fact is, as you correctly identified and certainly everyone who is a veteran of the mission would say this we went out that day to capture a bunch of militia guys from their headquarters in the middle of a city of a million people and we did mm -hmm. just that 
cost us 18 guys. Uh, and it was a, it was a long, hard day, but the fact is the mission was 100% successful. And so many people in the public and the press were like, oh, it was a disaster. And, oh, it was a failure. And it wasn't a failure at all. Operationally, we did exactly what we intended to do. No other country in the world could have done that with 200 guys. No other country. So what was it like? Obviously, you get back after that to the airport and then for how often, but um, soon after that, the U.S. starts pulling out. So what was that like sort of, you know, pulling out of a country that you've been in for a while? What was what was the process well, like? You know, politics drive foreign policy. And those of us who implement foreign policy at the very pointy end of the stick, which is usually special ops, but not always, you know, regular infantry and Marines, man, they can roll in on things and do stuff that other forces can't do. But in my, my case, it's a difficult thing to accept. And we just went through this yesterday. The war ended yesterday. And we pulled out of Afghanistan and I have lost 14 teammates amongst other people that I've known that were from other units. And in the end, you, you are left with having to deal psychologically and emotionally and even physiologically because it affects you that way. The fallout from the politics changed, our elected leaders have made decisions and we're now out of here. And that's exactly what happened in Somalia. And it's a very bitter thing to do. Maybe it helped me with this campaign because I had been through it all 28 years ago, but um, yeah. there's, no, there's nothing good about it for an individual like me. Well, except to say in this case, say Afghanistan, no other American service men or women will lose their lives in Afghanistan for a country that was never gonna be a democracy, not really. And so for that, right. I am grateful that we are out, but I'm not happy about any any part of it. Yeah, so where did you go after um, Somalia? Where did you go after that? What, what was sort of like your career progression? My career progression isn't really chartable. It's more like a Rorschach blot that you could throw on a wall because I, I kind of went where I wanted to go to do things I found interesting. So I. I went off to be an instructor uh, for other younger combat controllers. I taught tactics and, and, and communications um, at the combat control school. And I got my mm -hmm. degree while I was there, my four-year degree. And um, I got out. And then I ended up in the Army SF as an Army Special Forces guy. I didn't go to become a full Green Beret. I ran the, the HALO high altitude program for a reserve uh, mm -hmm. Special Forces unit in Utah. And I enjoyed that. I did that for a handful of years and I ran halo training, which is, you know, most people, if they know anything about me, it's that I like parachutes. And uh, yeah. so I did that for a handful of years. And then through serendipity, I ended up uh, getting recruited by the air national guard to stand up a special tactics squadron. So I, I created a, hmm. a combat control special tactics squadron from scratch in the air national guard so I went back into the Air Force, and that was the first commander of that unit, and then spent a number of years doing that. And then I went back to uh, uh, an organization back east and became uh, the commander of a special mission unit there that I can't really talk about. But mm -hmm. I, I got to be the first commander of this other unit and that we created for, for some specific reasons. And so I spent a number of years there doing that. And then I did one final assignment where I spent a lot of time uh, working on weapons of mass destruction with 
the CIA and the NSA and the NGIA and a lot of these other, and the FBI. Um, and that's where I wrapped up my career. I spent a lot of time in DC uh, moving around within those organizations, looking at weapons of mass destruction. Primarily for me was biological and chemical warfare because I think those are very real problems. And I was, I found that very satisfying to be focused on that. And you put that all yeah. together and it's 31 years. And then I left the military, came back to Utah and started writing books and skiing a lot. I like to ski a lot. Yeah, well, you're in a good spot for it, for sure. Yes. Yeah, that is a by far the most varied career of anyone I've had on here. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I've been enlisted and commissioned in the Army and enlisted and commissioned in the Air Force, which may be a first. I doubt anybody has done all, all of those. But um, that's not a good career path if you're trying to get promoted. I was really interested. Yeah. I wasn't really focused on that. I was really focused on doing things I thought were necessary or hard for me to do. I really like challenging myself with new things. So what was it? How did you decide like getting out? How did you decide to become an author? Well, I, uh, I had written, you know, the battle of Mogadishu is a book I had written. I don't even know how long ago, a long time ago, 15 years ago or right. something. And, um, in fact, longer than that, probably nearly 20 years ago. And, I did that book with a very dear friend of mine who was a ranger, Matt Eversman, who became the poster child of the movie Black Hawk Down because Josh Hartnett, the actor, plays Matt. And we did that book. It was Matt's book to start with. And I said, hey, I'll, he asked me if I would help him. And I said, I would. And I, even though I didn't really want to write about myself, that was the book the book was about. But for me, mm -hmm. I knew if I wanted to write books later, if you'd had a book deal and you were successful, it's easier to get a book deal later. So I had known for some years that I, I wanted to be a writer. What kind of writer and what kind of stories I would tell, I didn't actually know. But when I got closer to retirement, my last couple of years in Washington, D.C., and I worked banker's hours. I was work, used to working, you know, 18-hour days and deploying all the time, and that that's not conducive. But I had this banker's hours job that, you know, they, people are open from eight to five, basically, at most of these government agencies. So I would commute and I would write on the metro going back and forth to the house. And hmm. um, I started writing novels. And that's what I really wanted to do. So hmm. when I got out, I was fortunate enough to get a very good agent. And he was supportive of my fiction writing. But when I got out, uh, John Chapman's story, which is the book that, that came to be Alone at Dawn, uh, I was introduced to his sister who became my co-author and I realized I was obligated to write this book. I knew John, right. I knew all about combat control, obviously, and I knew about the events and I didn't think anybody else could write this book as well as I could. Mm -hmm. So I stopped writing novels and I ended up writing that book because my agent said, stop writing novels and write this book. And if you write this book, it'll be a New York times bestseller, which is by no means guaranteed a bit of pressure there yeah. from him, but but we got there and uh, I'm very proud of the book. And then from there, I've just kept writing other nonfiction books. Uh, you know, yeah. my current book tour is The Power of Awareness. And that's basically a how not to be a victim of crime using CIA and special operations and, and law enforcement tactics. Uh, it's a guide on how not to be a victim. And, uh, you know, so that's, that's my current purpose in life is that to help people be safer and travel the world. And I really like doing that. And it's very satisfying. So I never really have preparation to become a writer. I didn't write as a child. I wasn't a big reader until late in high school. 
And, um, but I, I like that it forces me to start over from scratch. doesn't matter if I was a halo expert or I have a world record for most base jumps or I can ski grade or speed fly. You can either write a story or you can't. Nobody cares if I did this. Right. Other thing. Yeah. And I, and I like reinventing myself and doing things that, that push me and stretch me and I can write for the rest of my life. And so I found it very satisfying to be a writer. Yeah. So for those who are listening to this, and maybe haven't heard um, of your books. Can you start of tell us like um, in like five minutes or less, what was the story of John Chapman's Medal of Honor? Um, yeah. Sort of basic. So, you know, it's the central core of that book. And it's also a, a, a very big budget film starring Jake Gyllenhaal. We're going to probably film next year. Um, and I'm very excited about that. But, John Chapman's story is he was a combat controller assigned to the 24th Special Tactics Squadron. And when the war broke out, he ended up deploying with SEAL Team 6. And they went on to the top of a mountain during what was the biggest air mobile operation since Vietnam. It was called Operation Anaconda, which wasn't planned very well. And the SEALs on this mission and their leadership did not plan the mission very well. There was Delta Forces guys out there with combat controllers behind the lines and the SEALs wanted to put in a team as well, which they did, but uh, there was some consequence to some of the, 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 the quick planning and, and, and failure to really understand everything on the battlefield. So John finds himself on this mountain with the SEALs because uh, one of the SEALs on their initial infiltration had fallen out of the helicopter when the helicopter took fire hovering above their objective or their insert point. And when the helicopter limped off because it couldn't land and pick up this seal, um, the seals, the remaining surviving seals and John Chapman went back to rescue him. In the course of landing on this mountain under heavy gunfire with another helicopter, um, mm-hmm. John Chapman led the charge uphill uh, into a bunker and eliminated the most immediate threat, but they were getting fire from, from at least three directions and they were very outnumbered, uh, which was part of the original problem. So what happened with John is he got shot, was mortally wounded by two rounds to the torso, but he saved the rest of the SEALs. And they retreated under fire because two more of their team had now been either shot or received shrapnel uh, wounds. But when they retreated, they left John behind. And John recovered on this mountain, found himself alone. It's now the early hours of the morning and lights starting to come up. In fact, by the time he was holding this top of this mountain by himself, he's received multiple gunshot wounds. It's now basically daylight and alone. He holds off uh, a couple dozen Chechen and Uzbek fighters and makes this decision to save uh, the third helicopter. Now that's going to come to this mountain that's coming to rescue the seals, but nobody knows John's up there. But John knows where the helicopter's going. So he makes this very, it's one of the most courageous things I've, I've ever been affiliated with in my 30 years and even other things that I've studied. He makes the decision to climb out of the bunker, having been shot probably close to a dozen times at this point. He ultimately got shot a dozen times and protect this helicopter with his life. And in the course of doing that, he got shot through the heart and he expired on the battlefield but having saved another 18 men, he didn't even know. 
And for that, he's the first airman uh, in nearly 50 years to receive the Medal of Honor for the Air Force. Right, yeah. And it's really incredible story. I remember reading the, um, I remember reading your book, actually, and I started it right before bed. So I was sitting there and I got to the bit where he, you know, he was on the mountain. I just read through and it was, you know, midnight before I knew it was happening because I just wanted to finish it. But that, it was, I, that I, that's very kind of you. That's a great compliment. Yeah. <laughs> that's what every writer wants. I want people to pick up my, you know, a book should be, have value. In this case, hopefully, you know, it was educational that people can learn about it. But if it's mm-hmm. not a good read and you don't enjoy it, then it's not a good book. So I, I'm yeah. very pleased that you found it compelling. Yeah, the story itself. So if you want to just tell people really quick where they can find the book and your other stuff that we've been talking about. Um, yeah, um, well, the book's in any bookstore. You, you know, anywhere you want to get it, uh, you can pick up Alone at Dawn, uh, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, what have you. I really support independent bookstores. I'm a big believer in indie bookstores. If you go to danshillingbooks.com, it's just all one word, or Google my name. If you find something about Black Hawk Down or World Records and Base Jumping, you got the right guy. And you'll find a link to my website from there. Um, You can get autographed copies through the King's English, which is my local indie bookstore here in Salt Lake City. Um, I go there every week and sign books that uh, come in by request. Um, but also on my website, you'll see my new book, The Power of Awareness, is, right. is front you know, and center because that's what I'm currently on book tour with. And you can you see my other projects. You know, I, I do a lot of different things that um, I think have value. I, I'm an instructor for an adaptive sports program, so I teach people with disabilities how to ski. And I find that very, 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 very satisfying and helping them mm-hmm. enjoy the mountain and get out in a way that they might not otherwise be able to. And I speed fly a lot. You know, if you've seen my videos, I'm usually in the wintertime, I'm speed flying with skis on. And in the summertime, I, I just run fast. So yeah. most of my projects, you can find them on my website. And you can, uh, people are welcome to reach out to me. You can drop me an email there and uh, I will respond to people um, who submit requests. Yeah. Well, and quite obviously, that's how I contacted you. So Yes, that's how we came work. together. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and I listen, I love doing shows like this. I think grassroots efforts, like what you're doing, Austin are the backbone of the American spirit. You know, it's not Joe Rogan and the experience, you know, he goes off on a lot of conspiracy things, but you know, the, while that gets a lot of people, I think it's shows like yours that I think have the greatest value and character. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Cause that's sort of what I'm trying to do. I think you're doing but, it, man. Yeah, so I will post um, links to your website and then to um, an Amazon link for the book um, in the show notes for this episode so people can look at it. Um, but yeah, and so obviously you've mentioned base jumping and speed flying. That looks, especially speed flying, looks like a lot of fun to do. I, I really like speed. Speed flying is great because I'm not going to, the likelihood I'm going to die is not the same as base jumping when you're always a couple mm-hmm. seconds away from death. If you do it wrong right. or you don't do it exactly right every time, you don't break your ankle, you, you, you get killed. So I don't base yep. jump that much anymore. But speed flying is a great way to get the feel of a parachute. Uh, but you got to climb to the top of a mountain, you know, or ski to the top of a mountain. And then right. it's, especially in the wintertime, my favorite is you know, sometimes you're flying the parachute and your skis are just kind of on the ground 
Mm-hmm. And sometimes you're skiing and you're just keeping the parachute inflated, but you're mostly using your skis to, to go where you want and you just bring the parachute along for the ride. But, but at the same yeah. time, as you get to the edge of this one steep spot of a mountain and you shoot off of a 140 foot cliff, parachutes already flying buddy you're good and it's just this really great sense of flow and i really you know i used to skydive for many years and i did skydive demonstrations and halo jumping and all that and now i think that's kind of boring so i don't skydive anymore but speed flying is just you're in the trees you're on the mountain it's beautiful it's a nice day or you can't be flying so it's going to be good weather and uh for me it's very liberating and it's very calming it keeps me centered and it helps me with my own challenges with either ptsd or just the pressures of life and it's a great release yeah. and it beats it drinking. looks like a ton of fun yeah good point one of these years i want to try it yeah uh, i you know i you need to learn to paraglide probably first which is how most people right. start um and that's great fun too i don't paraglide because i think it's 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 a little there's not enough speed or terrain involved you're really just flying mm-hmm. but it's you need those parachute skills and you also right. need to be a good, you know, skier as well. So, you know, the plus side is you do both those sports separately and eventually you get good enough. You can put them together. Yeah. So looking back um, on your 30 plus years in the military, you could go way back and you could tell Dan Schilling when he was out of high school, some piece of advice, what would that be? Before you enlist in the military for the first time, especially coming right out of high school, because you, you don't have a, degree so you can't be an officer and I really believe I spent half my career enlisted so I I think the thing that's most important to that young man or woman is what do you really want to get out of it you know is it Mm -hmm. adventure you know or is it just education or some type of technical training and you need to check out all the services because there are great advantages to the air force over the army depending on what you want to do but the opposite is Mm -hmm. also true you want to shoot guns, you want to jump out of airplanes, you know, you're, it's easier to do it in the Army. You can become a combat controller in the Air Force, of course, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, the Air Force is more technical and it's very aviation focused and space focused because it now has Space Force, just like the Navy right. Department has the Marine Corps. So my advice is, what do you really want to do if you were only going to do it for four years? And check them all out first. Don't just go into the first yeah. one and get a good recruiter like I did, who said, we'll pay you to jump out of airplanes. If I had dug into it more, I wouldn't have joined the army first. Now, that being said, I wouldn't trade anything I've done in my career because I'm very fortunate to have had the career I had. Maybe one exception. I would trade some of my experiences for the lives of my teammates that I lost. If I could get those guys back, I'd trade off the experiences I got from those missions. Yeah. I think most people would. Um, Yeah. So, I'm sorry about a stump here because normally my last question is like, what three airplanes w- would you like? But you're not really an airplane sort of guy. Um, so if you could find, let's put it this way. If you could find three vehicles from your experience or from, let's say you have a time machine and a blank check, um, you could go and you could buy three different vehicles or even, you know, three different be a vehicle, a helicopter, an airplane, or what have you, what would you choose and why? It's an easy question. I'd take that time machine and I'd go forward because I'd go into space and go to Mars. That's what I would do. And I don't know what that vehicle looks like. And I think there are some very significant tech 
technological and physiological challenges to really getting to Mars and back alive. Yeah. But I would do that. Um, second to that would be helicopter. I, I don't usually say this or mention it or reveal it, but I wanted to be a helicopter pilot. And really? I, I had a, I passed the, the aptitude test. I had great ASVAB scores, but my, my left eye was 2025. It wasn't 2020. And in 1985, Ooh. they wouldn't waive that. Now, I'm glad I didn't become a helicopter pilot because my career was so much more diverse. But yeah. being a helicopter pilot, I've flown helicopters, and I think they're a gas, man. I just think flying yeah. a helicopter is so much fun. So, uh, you know, I guess sort of that, the third one would be uh, piloting a glider and getting a glider license because I think the serenity yeah. and the quiet that comes with that is really kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, I've been up in a glider. It's amazing. You get yeah. up to like 2,500 feet, um, you know, tow plane releases you or whatever, and you just glide. It's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. So yeah. I, those are my answers. But if you had me neck it down to one, I'd go to space. That's actually really interesting because you're only the second guy so far to say that. I had another guy who said that he wanted to go to space like a season ago, but everyone else is like they want to go back and buy whatever they flew or something like that yeah the right flyer so, or, or, or a yeah. steerman or you know the sr-71 or something like that uh, to me yeah. it's about more than the flight though and i think that's because you're mostly talking to pilots so for them they understand the beauty and, and nuance of some of those aircraft but for me it's about the the broader and deeper experience uh, yeah. and that's how i feel about speed flying it's not just the speed flying it's it's everything. When I land, I am a very happy person. And if I could go to space yeah. even once, I would do it. Yeah. So is there anything that I have not talked about that you'd like to cover um, as we start to wrap up here? No, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I think this is a great forum that you have. And I think your topics are, um, I, I think they're going to have greater value as time goes on. So I just appreciate being here. Um, yeah. You know, I guess my final message is for everybody out there is, you know, be aware and stay safe. That's the purpose of my book. And I hope people are, yep. are getting back out and I hope they've enjoyed our interview. And I, thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, it was a pleasure to have you for sure. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap up the recording then. So thanks for talking to me tonight. I appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. listening to the Aeronaut Podcast. Please leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast app, subscribe, and we'll be back in 10 days with another great interview. So long.